0: Eli, Eli, Lama My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? At the climactic moment of Jesus' life, he cries out from the cross the first words of Psalm 22. It's kind of important to remember as you leaf through the Bibles open in front of you that in Jesus' day, the Scriptures didn't have chapter numbers. There weren't verse numbers. There weren't headings. There was no table of contents. The way you referenced a particular section of Scripture was to quote the first words of it. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As Jesus hangs her on the cross, he cries out. Actually, he probably sings out. Remember, the psalms are worship songs. This is Christ on the cross singing with his dying breath the words of Psalm 22 as a way of saying, this psalm, this is what I'm all about. This psalm explains what I'm here to do, what's happening right now it may well be the most important quote that Jesus ever makes from the Old Testament because it reveals the very essence of who he is and what he's doing there on the cross. If you want to understand him at all, you need to understand this psalm. And so today we're going to try and do that by digging into what is arguably one of the most difficult to read because it's heart-wrenching and difficult to understand because it's mysterious, one of the most difficult psalms that we have in the Bible. And we're going to do that by asking a series of questions, three of them in sequence. First, we want to explore exactly what it is about this psalm that is so perplexing. Why, why is this psalm such a mystery? I want you to see the enigma of it. And then we're going to suggest the answer to the mystery. And then we're going to end as... As you always should when you read the Word of God by saying, what does it mean practically for the way that you and I will conduct our lives today and tomorrow? What does Psalm 22 mean practically for us? If you'd like, you can follow along. There are notes in the back page of your order of service. But We start by asking the question about what it is in this psalm that is so very mysterious and so very difficult to understand as we read it just at face value. This is David's psalm, one of the psalms written by King David himself. Now, I want you to notice a few things that I think are just inexplicable about it. First, there's the, the inexplicable, I guess you would call it the, the juridical nature of the psalm, crime and punishment. Juridical matters. What's happening? Those of you who are Bible scholars, seminary students, Bible college geeks, on class, what's going on here in Psalm twenty-two? Look at the evidence. Verses six to eight. We see he's out there in public. People are jeering at him. Verse 17, they're gloating. They're scorning him. Verse 15, he's dying of thirst, so much so it says that his tongue has swollen up and he's beginning to choke on it. In verse 17, it says he's so emaciated that you can see the bones pressing through the skin, every one of them. In verse 16, he's been pierced in his hands and his feet by, by a sword or a spear. What's happening to him? This is an execution. This is a public execution. I mean, the clincher is verse 18, where it says, they cast lots for my garments. See, whenever a criminal is executed in a public setting, the executioners got the clothes, the telltale sign that that's what's going on here. So here's the question. Here's the enigma. When and where did this ever happen to King David, the author of this psalm? When was he ever dragged out in front of a public trial like this, sentenced to execution, sentence carried out in full view of the mocking crowds? We know more about David's life than almost any single other character in the Old Testament or in antiquity. When did this happen to him? Never did. In fact, not only did it not happen, it couldn't have happened, at least not this way. We have to be really careful not to be anachronistic, not to read back into the world of the Bible our understandings about how things might happen today. In the ancient world, if you overthrew a king, there would be no public trial. There would be no courtroom episode. You mounted a coup and you killed him. And you took the throne. In other words, not only did this not happen to David, it couldn't have happened to David, at least not in this way. And that's not all. The mystery gets deeper. It's not just this, this juridential crime and punishment nature of what's going on. There's this almost inexplicable inexplicable submissiveness of David. If you read the book of Psalms, one thing that you'll notice is that David never took injustice lying down, did he? He's always crying out for justice, always crying out that God would smash his persecutors right in the teeth. makes for hard reading sometimes. But there's none of that here. Even though this is arguably the most extreme situation we see anywhere in the Psalms, the most extreme injustice, and yet there is no word from David crying out that God would smash his perpetrators. So you have this inexplicable juridical nature of the Psalm, you have this inexplicable submissiveness and silence of the one being executed. Verses 4 and 5. They say, and this is just sort of historical knowledge, that if you cry out in faith to God, God will hear you. But in this case, God is treating David as if he's faithless, and God is not hearing him. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why am I abandoned? He's treating him as if he is someone who he's not. The beloved, faithful king of God's people. And here's the most inexplicable part of the psalm. It's there in the ending. We didn't read all the way to the end, but, but let's look through it. See there in verses 20 and 21, David's saying, deliver me from death, deliver my life from the sword, rescue me. In verse 22, he starts talking as if his deliverance is going to happen or that it's already happened. It says, I declare your name for he has not despised or disdained the suffering of the afflicted one. He's listened to the cry for help. In other words, verse 22 and following, we see David laying claim to this promise that that he'll be delivered from death, or he's already been delivered from death. And look at the results. Look down to verse 27. It says, all the ends of the earth will remember. They will turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will bow down before him. What? Again, this is David David's saying, I was about to be executed, but God delivered me from death. And because of that, all the nations of the world are going to be converted. The poor nations, verse 26, the wealthy nations, verse 29. What he seems to be saying is, as a result of my deliverance, instead of one little racial ethnic group in one little part of the world worshiping the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, all the nations of the earth are going to be doing that. He has the the audacity to go even further and say that it's not just that his deliverance is going to lead to a mass conversion of all the peoples of the earth, but that endless generations, generation after generation, right up to you and I today, are going to remember this moment. And then it, it concludes, verses 30, 31, it says, Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness. They will declare it to a people not yet born, you and I. They will say, he has done it. Here's the question. How could David possibly imagine that his deliverance from death, from an execution that never happened, no matter how heroic or how dramatic it might have been, would lead to the conversion of all the nations of the earth. This psalm, at least on the face of it, is an enigma. It's a mystery. I hope you see that. How in the world the first readers, the first hearers, the first singers of this psalm would have read it or understood it, I have no idea. But once you've gotten a hold of the mystery, your mind goes searching for an answer. What's the solution to the mystery of Psalm 22? There's only one that I know of. There's only one way to account for this psalm, and that's to believe what the apostle Peter said. I want to show you where. Keep your thumb in Psalm 22, but flip ahead to the book of Acts. Find Acts chapter 22. In Acts 22, verse 31, you might want to write a little note in the margin that just says Psalm 22. This is what Peter says. Acts 2.31, being a prophet, David foresaw and spoke of the Christ. In other words, what Peter's saying is that maybe at some point in, in his life, David was going through a season of suffering, and he's meditating, he's reflecting on that. But as he does so, through the work, through the power of the Holy Spirit, he's given prophetic insight into a much greater David, who would endure a much deeper suffering, a greater abandonment by God for purposes of a greater deliverance, and that would lead to an everlasting kingdom. There is just, there's just no way to make sense of Psalm 22 unless you understand that it is about somebody else, It's not about David at all. During these weeks leading up to Easter, we prepared during the season of Lent, we've been reaching back and discovering these ancient songs, these worship songs that speak with astonishing accuracy about not just what Jesus would do, but how it would unfold in all of its detail and what the meaning of Good Friday and Easter dawn would be. And just so we don't miss the point, Jesus sings out the words of Psalm 22 with his dying breath. What does it all mean? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It tells us about Jesus, but it tells us a few things specifically. The first thing it tells us is something about his suffering, about the depth of it, about the infinity of his suffering. When you, when, when you hear him screaming it, you realize what a marked departure that is from everything that had happened up until that point. Jesus had already endured all kinds of things, terrible things, and yet he hadn't spoken a word. He'd been flogged. He'd been beaten. He'd been mocked, of course. Thorns had been pressed into his skull. He'd had nails driven through his hands, and all the time he was silent. He just took it. Looking back on that moment, the Bible says in the book of Acts that he was like a lamb that was silent there in the presence of its shearers. All that suffering, all that pain, and he never said a thing. And then suddenly he screams as if to say something new has happened, Something, some kind of agony, something beyond the physical, beyond the nails, beyond the thorns, beyond all of that. Because he doesn't just cry out, my hands, my hands, or my head, my head. What does he say? My God. My God. He's He's experiencing here something infinitely beyond, infinitely worse than physical pain. It was an absolute sense of isolation and separation from God. I mean, do you understand what that would be like for him? The Bible says, and we know by experience, that we were made for relationships. As bad as it is to go through financial catastrophe and lose money, or to go through illness and lose health, it's nothing like losing love. Nothing like losing the love of a lifetime. I've been there, and so have you, and watched a widow scream into the grave as they try and say goodbye to a companion that had known them and been known by them for 50, 60 years. Counselors will tell you there is, there is nothing more devastating than to lose a lifetime love. But look here at Jesus. His relationship with the Father isn't just a 40 or 50 year affair. They had loved one another, been together for all eternity. They're not two parties whose bodies were just pressed up together to express love. They were wrapped up together. They were one essence, one God together for all eternity. What must have this been like? The Bible says we are made for the presence of God, that we need the presence of God spiritually, the way that growing things need the sun. Without it, they fade. You know, if the sun were to go off, suddenly every living organism on the earth would die, would freeze, immediately be destroyed. And Jesus lost The presence of God, in that instant, he was engulfed in an absolute freezing eternal darkness and his soul unraveled infinitely. Infinite spiritual disruption. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's something else in the words, though. It doesn't just speak to suffering. It speaks to faithfulness. And I have to admit, I didn't see this for a long time. And this, this cry really bothered me because it felt like Jesus came apart in this moment. But look closely. My God. My God. Just when it feels like he's losing his grip You go deeper and realize it's exactly the opposite. You know what it means to say, my God. Here's what it meant to Jesus. This is the language of covenant faithfulness. Some of you will remember that moment back when when God was gathering his people there at the foot of Mount Sinai and he says to them, I'm going to enter into the most intimate relationship with you covenant relationship. It's going to bind us together. You will be my people. I will be your God. And when you speak to me, it will be using that language, my God, my God. And so when Jesus is calling out to him, my God, my God, it's, it's the language of loyalty, of covenant faithfulness. It's the language of intimacy. I mean, we know this instinctively. If I speak about my Joshua or my Karina. You might not know exactly who those people are, but you would suspect, and you'd be right to suspect, that I'm speaking about my children or my wife. It's just an intimacy to the language. Let me set it up. Let me just give you the contrast. For some, this is going to invoke nightmarish memories of high school English, but did you read Moby Dick? You got through all of its hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pages. But you remember that penultimate scene? Captain Ahab, just before his death, remember what he says? He says, From hell's heart I stab at thee. I mean, here's Jesus Christ, someone who's literally right there in hell's heart. And what does he say? From hell's heart I hold on to thee, my God. My God, I remain faithful to thee. Still loving in the midst of the infinity of suffering. And when you put those two things together, an infinity of suffering with an infinity of faithfulness, what comes out the other side is the miracle of redemption. And it is the most dramatic of all the themes that we know of in all the stories of literature, in all the movies, and in all the lyric poems, and all the songs, nothing inspires or breaks us quite like the story of redemption. What is it that a rescuer does? A rescuer is there in safety, and they see somebody who's in danger, and they leave the safety of their world, and they go into danger to take the person who's there and bring them back here to a place of safety. And sometimes... When they do that, they wind up making the ultimate exchange, the ultimate sacrifice, and getting them free, they give up their own life. It's the most moving of all the stories that we have. It doesn't matter whether they're true stories or not, there's truth in them. Tolkien said this is the essence of the most moving stories we know of. When things are in danger, someone has to give themselves up, Tolkien wrote so that others may go on. The cross, we call it the tree of life. And it's a beautiful, descriptive, accurate language, but the only reason it's the tree of life for us is because it was the tree of death for him. It's the ultimate substitution. Infinite faithfulness, infinite suffering come together to produce the miracle of redemption. And when you take hold of that, no matter who you are, no matter what life has hurled at you, no matter what you've done, God receives you into his family. Let me ask with you that, that final question, maybe the most important, certainly the most practical. What does it mean for us? What does Psalm 22, what do those words mean? I mean, well, gosh, it's a sermon on the cross, we could go on for years about that, but let's not do that. Let's, let's spend just a few minutes, and I want to suggest to you three kind of profound, practical implications of what those words from Jesus sung from the cross could mean for you. Three ways that you can understand and apply those words in your life. They speak to the, the potential of personal transformation. They deal with the experience of suffering. And I think they provide Scripture's very best answer to the feeling that comes along in our lives sometimes that God has given up on us. God's abandoned us. First, let's talk, though, about about transformation. I mean, this is the key to real change. When you really understand what happened here, I mean, I know it is for me. The cry on the cross forces us to see that the God of the Bible, the God of the Lord Jesus Christ, is absolutely holy. And he is absolutely loving. And he's absolute in both at the same time. I can't, I can't say this more emphatically. Your, your temperament, your personality, your psychology, religious background, church background, your culture, all of that will tend to tip in one direction or the other. See, God is more loving than holy, or more holy than loving. And it's only because he's both, and it's only when he is both, when you've really grasped that, when it really comes together in your life, when it smacks you in the face, that it really changes you. You see, why, have thou, why hast thou forsaken me? means that he was so holy, God was so holy, that this had to happen. But my God, my God, means that Jesus was still so loving he was willing to do it. In other words, that one verse of Scripture shows me both the absolute holiness and the absolute love of God. And that's the key to transformation. Let me show you how. If you're of a, and I couldn't think of a good word here, so I'm just going to say conservative. If you're of a conservative temperament, you will think of God basically as holy and righteous, and you'll tend in the direction of thinking that that our best responsibility in life is to live well, holy, moral, upright, righteous lives, and somehow that sneaks in an understanding of what it means to be saved. But when you think of your relationship with God in those terms, it doesn't move you. It doesn't fill you with joy and tears. It doesn't melt your heart, and it doesn't exhilarate you. Well, yeah, sure, of course I believe in God, and I'm trying to live a good life. On the other hand, if, if you're more of a, of a liberal temperament, again, not the best word, but you tend to think of God as mainly loving. I believe in a God who just loves and accepts everyone the way they are. And you say, therefore, if a person is saved, they're saved because God just loves them, and, and that's all there is. You say, well, sure, I believe in God, I have a relationship with him, He loves me, but he loves everybody. And it doesn't move you. And it doesn't fill you with tears. It doesn't shock you, and it doesn't galvanize you, and it doesn't change you. It sounds like such an appealing idea on the surface, doesn't it? I believe in a God of pure love who loves everybody no matter what, but let me ask you this. What did it cost your God to love like that? A loving God who is not holy is nowhere near as loving as the God of the Bible. And a holy God who is not loving is nowhere near as holy as the biblical God. You see, it's because he is loving and he is holy that there is this free, free, free grace. But it's costly. It's infinitely costly. When all I hear is that our God is holy and demanding, it might make me respond out of fear. It might make me listen, but it doesn't change my heart. When all I hear is that that God is just very, very loving, and like some dotering old grandfather, he accepts everybody. Well, that's nice, and it might inspire me, but it doesn't change me. But When I know that I am the recipient of this kind of costly grace, that Jesus went to hell's heart for me and was loving and obedient for me, that changes me. That's tears. That's amazement. That's exhilaration. That's galvanizing. And you know why it changes? Because at the same time, it humbles me out of my pride, out of my self-centeredness, but it affirms me out of my inferiority and my self-pity. It makes me hate my sins because it led to his death. But it forbids me from hating myself because he did it for me to make me free. There's nothing that will change you quite like understanding who God is. absolutely holy, absolutely loving at the same time. It'll, just, it'll pull you out of every psychological category that there is. There are no inferiority complexes. There are no superiority complexes. You're just off the map. It takes you off the scale completely. Understanding the cry of Jesus on the cross is the key to personal transformation. Here's a second thing. And let's be honest, this, this hits our church family right in a tender spot. Yesterday, I was with a number of you at the eighth funeral that we've been involved with since December. The season of suffering that is so poignant and painful in some of your lives means that this is a place where Psalm 22 is going to need to connect with the painful daily reality of waking up in the morning and trying to face an empty pillow next to you. If you're in trouble right now, if you're in pain right now, I want you to hold on to these two ideas. Here's the first. The cry of Jesus from the cross gives us the greatest possible companion in our suffering. You know the thing that people need most in their suffering, eh? Took me a long time to know this. There's still times when I think I miss it. It's not answers. I mean, we want those two. We want to know why. Why did it happen this way? Why now, Lord? But people can survive without answers. They cannot make it without companionship. They just feel like they are absolutely alone. Christianity is the only faith on the face of the earth that says that our God is your companion in suffering that God has suffered, that God does suffer. David Watson was a Christian leader some years ago. While he was dying of cancer, he penned some of these words in his journal. Watson says, somebody once said to me, there cannot be a God of love, because if there was and he looked upon the world, his heart would break. But the gospel points to the cross and says, It did break. Watson went on. He said, someone once said to me, it's God who made the world. It's he who should bear the load. But the gospel points to the cross and says, he did bear the load. God weeps with those who weep. He feels our pain. He enters our sorrows. He is our companion with his compassion and love. if the first thing that you get from the words of Jesus is a reminder of the companionship of God in your suffering, here's the second thing. Get the promise that there is for all of us who walk with him in this, the greatest possible future. One of the worst things about being in darkness is the feeling that there will never be light again. When Jesus cried out in the midst of his darkness, remember infinite suffering, infinite faithfulness. The result was deliverance. It means that your suffering has a future. What do we mean by that? Let me just give you one more quote. This was a favorite writer of mine in university, Michael Green. Green writes that Jesus' cry on the cross means for Christians there is a future for suffering. That suffering ultimately is not blind or wanton or senseless. It has a purpose. Look what Jesus' suffering produced. Look what benefits flowed from the awesome suffering gladly endured. Green goes on to say it's the same with Jesus' followers. Mystery though it is, much flows from it when it is gladly endured. Character is formed by it. Art and creativity is stimulated by it. Compassion and care is evoked by it. Royalty comes from it. Jesus was regal on the cross in his suffering. And Green concludes by saying, in the end, the greatest mystery of all, 2 Corinthians 4.17 reads, For this light, momentary affliction, preparing us for an eternal weight of glory, Beyond all comparison. One final word. Why have you forsaken me? You found yourself expressing the same words to God? Sure you have, right? Those moments where the abandonment of God just feels so poignant and and so painful. Martin Luther once said this about Psalm 22. Psalm 22 has helped me out of difficulties from which no king or ruler could ever have freed me. I'm not totally sure what he meant by that, but I think I have a good idea. Martin Luther was, the word they used to describe him was a melancholic person. It means he was prone to depression. And I know what that's like. It means he had trouble some days holding on to positive emotions. He had trouble feeling the presence of God. And boy, there's a lot of us who are like that. But look, you know what this episode on the cross tells us? It says that Jesus was deserted by God, actually, So that when it feels like we are deserted by God, it's only apparently. And often it's our own emotions, our own physiology, all these uncertain things that are deceiving us. You feel abandoned because those things are not reliable. But Jesus was abandoned actually so that you will only ever be abandoned apparently. Hold on hold on and I guarantee he'll be back there in your emotions, in your thoughts, in your understanding. He's never left you. He was deserted, really, so that you would only ever be deserted, apparently. Let me pray for it. Thank you, Father, for showing us through this psalm who Jesus is. We are those generations who now, centuries later, praise you for what you've done when you delivered Jesus from death through the resurrection. This morning, there are hundreds and hundreds of millions of people and nations all around the earth who join us in praising your name and worshiping you. Nothing else could have done it. We're praising you because you have done it. You delivered Jesus. Through that, you've delivered us, and we thank you. Thank you, Father, for what Jesus did for us on the cross. We ask that you would help us to apply it to our lives in some of the ways we've discussed today. We pray it in Jesus' name.